Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. As a church, we like to try different things to kind of keep uh, things fresh and to knock us off center and to figure out how, how we can learn uh, together. So one of the things that we do often is we organize our sermons around different themes, different different things that we're trying to learn from. So sometimes we'll have it, we'll be, look at just a major thing in, in Scripture, and we'll jump around to different passages, learning how God is teaching God's people throughout time and through age, through, through this theme. Sometimes we, we'll stop and we'll do a sermon series on a, a present need that we have in our culture here today. But sometimes we actually like to, to just find a piece of Scripture and walk slowly through a, a book of the Bible or sort of some piece of Scripture. So we really dive in deep in what God want, wants us to learn through, through His Word. And so for this next four weeks, we're looking at the book of Ruth. And Ruth is quickly becoming one of my favorite books of the Bible, in part because I never really studied it much, but it's such a beautiful, simple story. It's this simple, short book. It's only four chapters the way in which it's written, it almost feels like four different acts that have been put together. And it's, it's the struggles they have are just common. It's common struggles that we find in Scripture with ordinary people. And something that I've realized in my own reading, and this, and I really encourage you to do this, you can sit down for 15 minutes and read the whole book. And I really hope and pray that y'all do that at least once during this month of November. Just find, find a time to sit down and read the whole story of Ruth. And what I learned when I was reading the book of Ruth is I was struck by the fact that not once in the book of Ruth does God speak, does God like really dramatically do anything. Like usually in Scripture, sometimes you'll, you'll hear God do a miracle or speak audibly or speak like to and through a leader. But in the book of Ruth, it seems like God, it seems like God is a passive character, and as, as a reader, and especially as a character in the story, you're wondering, where is God? But what you will find at the very end of the story is that God is underneath the story, moving and redeeming things. And I think that, that one of the reasons why that's so powerful to me is because oftentimes I'm wondering, all right, God, where are you? Like, I'm, I'm looking for you to act. I'm looking for you to move. I'm, I'm looking for this breakthrough to happen and sometimes what we don't perceive is that God is underneath the things, events, and people in our life, redeeming and restoring and working and bringing about goodness and beauty, although sometimes it's hard to see. That's what we find here in the book of Ruth. So I want to begin by just talking about the context and the characters so that we understand that. And this is a great story for us as we follow up our Live a Better Story series. So the first chapter of Ruth, and this is great that we have kids in here, it's really bleak. It's really bleak and sad and gloomy. I'm so glad the kids are here today. Uh, but it sets the tone for the whole story. And it, it's summed up in the very first verse. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And this first sentence sets the tone. You see, it was the days when the judges ruled was a really dark time for the people of Israel. It was a really, really, really challenging time. There was great chaos. The way uh, Judges 17.8 described this time is it was a time in those days there was no king in Israel. 
and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So in that day and age, there was no king, no leadership, and everyone chose to do what was right in their own eyes. There was no truth, no standard, there's no obvious lordship from God. And so people were choosing their own way, their own truth. And it was leading them from God. It was leading them from the life that they were created to live. But not only that, there was a great famine in the land. People were desperate. They, they had no provision. So there was a spiritual and a physical barrenness in the land, brokenness in the land. So that's the context that we have. What about the characters? So this is important to know. Names in the Bible have oftentimes, especially in the Old Testament, carry deeper meaning. So this is uh, later on in verse 1. So a man in, from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. This was, uh, this was a neighbor to Israel, and they, they did not have a good relationship, Moab and the people uh, of Israel. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. Now, if you knew Hebrew, lights would be going off as you heard these names. First off, the, the word Bethlehem literally means house of bread. So they were living in this land that was known to be the house of bread, but there was a great famine at that time. So things aren't as they were supposed to be. This place of provision, there, there was hunger. There was, it was desolate. Something had shifted in the identity of this place and this people. Now, Elimelech, the, the name Elimelech literally means, my God is king. Naomi's name is, uh, God is sweet. So imagine like Elimelech and Naomi being born and brought into this world in a time of great provision when things were sweet and things were great. You're looking around going, oh, this is what it was supposed to be. I'm going to name these children, my God is king and God is sweet. But as time goes on, things get worse. And these two sons were born. Malian, which, uh, Malian, which is, uh, literally means sick, and Killian, which means frail. Not great names for kids nowadays, right? We're not naming our kids, hey, this is my son, frail and sickly. We're hoping they'd be great football players or something like that. Uh, but they were using these names to describe the times in which these children were brought into this world. It's a really desperate time. So what would you do if you lived in a land where you look around and go, we're frail, we're sick, the house of bread has no bread, we're desperate. Well, what you do is you uproot your family and you go wherever you see provision with the hope that maybe if I get to this other place, this other land, maybe then we can start over, we can begin again, we can find provision. So Limelech and Naomi, they, they went to Moab of all places, a place where, like as an immigrant, you're not going to be seen well, you're not going to be cared for, not this Jewish family. And unfortunately, when they got there, things got worse. In verse 3, now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, he died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. Okay, another thing about names. Orpah means female deer or fawn. If you find that interesting, there you go. And Ruth, her name means friendship. Beautiful name, friendship. 
So these two sons marry these two women. And after they have lived there for 10 years, both Malan and Killian died. They also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. So after 10 years of trying to start over to find life again, 10 years later, not only do these women, uh, these Moabite women, they don't have children on their own after 10 years, but their husbands die. And so their family line within these 10 years is over with. Naomi now is a widow who's had to bury her two own sons, and their family is without child. Now, I just want to stop for a second here. There seems to be two great hardships when we look in Scripture, two great hardships that are common to uh, women. And one is to be able to not have a child, and the other is to be a widow. And if you seriously study the Old Testament in particular, you'll find again and again these characters come up in Scripture. It's very, very common in Scripture for that to happen. And uh, unfortunately, it's common in our own community, in our own experiences. I had a seminary professor once. Her name was Dr. Ruth Foster. She also um, never had a child. She was never married. And she taught me many things. One of the things she, she taught me is that my face is way too expressive. So in her lecture, if I disagreed with something, uh, I would try to like jot down some notes, and she would literally stop the class and go, Mark, you have something you'd like to say. And so I learned to just like be more stoic. Uh, another thing she taught me, though, is one class we were studying a passage like this, and she stopped and said, why is it that Scripture so often tells stories of women who are barren and widowed. And this class wisely was silent. She said, I wonder if it's because God has a unique attention for these women. And as God is writing his story of redemption and of hope, he goes after them again and again. Because what originally identifies who they are is not how God wants it to be. And God has a purpose for them. See, God finds people who are vulnerable, people who are sad and gone through sorrow, and His story finds them. It's a story of redemption. So these characters, you could look at these three women and wonder, where is God? But God is moving so close to them. That's the context, the characters, but now here's the conflict. If that was not already enough conflict. So when Naomi heard, and this is verse 6 of Ruth 1, when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to aid of the people by providing food for them, she and her daughters prepared to return home from there. They're going back to Judah. With her two daughters-in-law, she, Naomi, left the place where she had been living in Moab to set out on the road that would be take them back to the land of Judah. So, for, for Naomi, it's time to return. And in Jewish literature, repetition is really important. Uh, and so when you see a word emerge again and again, just know that the author of the Scripture is trying to say, hey, here it is again, here it is again. Look here, think about this. In this first chapter, the word to return or to turn back is used 12 different times. In this one chapter alone, to turn around, to turn again, 
to return is used 12 times. It's a chapter about turning. Finding yourself in a context where it's dark and bleak and turning. Naomi is turning from Moab. She's turning from the life that she thought that she would have. She's turning from burying her husband and the sons that she had. She's turning and she's going back home. But as you will see, she's also, in her mind, she's turning from God. In many ways, she's turning, and as we'll see in the rest of this story, she thinks that she's turning from God. But what she doesn't know is grace is right there. And as she's turning from God, grace is there waiting for her. I'm not sure if I'm the only one in this room, but there's been times in my life where I thought I was turning from God and that grace was around the corner. There's a time in my life, in college in particular, where I was trying my hardest to do what was right, to, to earn favor by God, to, to make things right again. And it led to me to a point where I was so bankrupt and frustrated. I prayed probably the most honest prayer of my life up to that point, where I literally said to God, I'm done. I'm done with this, and I'm done with you. And I literally got up from my seat where I was at that point, and I turned to leave this church, and I turned to leave God. And in this really profound moment that will mark the rest of my life, it was as if God said, good, you're done. Now it's my turn. And I discovered grace. I discovered what grace is. Turning from my efforts and my own righteousness, and even thinking I was turning from God, and then God showed me what grace is. This is a story, this is a chapter about turning. And I think as many of us, we know that we can turn. Sometimes we turn from the life we know we're called to live. We turn from the plans that we knew that we were called to make. Even in the song we just sang, Come Thou Fount, we, we just sang, I'm prone to wander. Lord, I feel I'm prone to leave this God I love. I'm a, I'm a person I can turn so easily. But grace is waiting. Grace is waiting. In verse 8, Then Naomi said to her two daughters, Go back, each of you to your own homes. Like, go back to Moab. You don't want to come with me. May the Lord show you kindness, or the word, the Hebrew word is hesed. May the Lord show you kindness, or hesed, as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant each of you find rest in the home of another husband. So, like, right here, Naomi is saying, this is it. We're saying goodbye. I bless you. Go back home. There's no future for you with me. So she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud, verse 10, and said to her, we will go back to be with your people. They're, they're trying to, to stay with Naomi, these two daughters-in-law. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? So in the culture in that day, there's something called a kinsman, a kinsman redeemer, which if, uh, uh, if a, uh, a son died and left a widow, it would be the responsibility or the, or the uh, obligation for one of the other sons to marry the widow. So that, and then it's super weird, but it's so that the family line wouldn't die off. There's nothing that was much more of an honor in that day and age to have your bloodline continue and to flourish. So that was the common practice. So that the deceased son's uh, line could continue, the brother would marry that. So Naomi's saying, uh, I'm old. 
even if I were to get married now and have a kid, would you even be able to wait then? She's saying, no, this is, it's over with. Like your story with me, it's, it's done. You need a new chapter. I release you. Leave me. In verse 14, at this they wept aloud. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. In this moment, we see now a little bit of who Ruth is. While Orpah, like a, a deer, takes off, and she had every right to, she had every right to, Ruth clung to her. That phrase, but Ruth clung to her, has stuck with me this week. That kind of like, just that response of when someone's trying to push you away for Ruth to cling to her. And this is how, uh, this, is how this response happened. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to your people under her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. There's that word turning back. And here are some of the most beautiful words that we find in the Old Testament. Ruth then told her mother-in-law this, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people are going to be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, even if death separates you and me. What, what Ruth just did here, she just made a covenant. Like she just made this solemn oath that Naomi, my life is now stuck to you. I'm clinging to you. You're not going to get rid of me. And we often hear these words where? At a wedding, right? Like we, that's where we usually hear these words. This probably felt more like a funeral than a wedding. It was the ending of things, not the beginning things. But what we see here is this character of Ruth just come out. You see, like this is why it's so beautiful, is what Ruth was saying is, I'm leaving my life behind for you. I am not turning towards my old life. I'm turning towards you at a great cost. At a great cost to me, I'm turning towards you. So Naomi, you as the immigrant came to my land, now I'm going to become the immigrant for you. You've become impoverished over here. I'm going to become impoverished for you. I'm going to go where you are. I'm going to become vulnerable in the same way that you have become vulnerable. And she knew that even though she just experienced great loss, she was clinging to Naomi, and she knew it was going to be costly. This kind of commitment, this, this covenant was risky. Ruth should have done like Orpah, but instead she chose to sacrifice her status, her comfort, and her future out of compassion. She literally died to her old self to find a new life with Naomi in a new land. Doesn't that sound like Jesus? That kind of sacrificing of self for the care and provision for someone else. What commitment. And notice that the promise is one-sided. It's not her saying, hey, you get my back and I'll get yours. All right, we're in this together. It's, no, I, my life for yours. My life for years. My life will be spent for you. And so they return. So they return. 
And with that, Naomi returns home. And I wonder what that road was like 10 years before Naomi coming to Moab with great hopes with a full family. And here she is walking the same steps as she did before, completely empty. So verse 19, so the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And they explained, can this be Naomi? You know, this is like a small town. So imagine, anyone grew up in a small town? When you like leave a small town, people talk about it. And when you come back to a small town, people talk about it. But especially imagine if you like lived in a small town and you left that small town to find hope in a future somewhere else. And then you came back with your tail between your legs. Oh, look, it's this Naomi. Look at She came back. She knows better now. But when she came back and they asked, couldn't this be Naomi? This was her response. Don't call me Naomi. Remember, what does Naomi mean? Sweet, sweetness, right? Don't call me Naomi. Instead, call me Mara. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. The word Mara means bitter. Naomi saying, my identity, my life of being sweet, it's done. What you're seeing now here is a bitter person. I am bitter. And notice where this bitterness is pointing to. Verse 21. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me sweet? Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. I mean, I don't, are we willing to talk like that about God? Like, do we, do we feel that kind of boldness to put God in the, in the sights of our bitterness and our frustration and our anger? Like, Naomi has some words about God. And she's like hurling all of her hurt, her frustration, her anger. And it's like Scripture is allowing us to have room to see Naomi have that kind of bitterness to God. But here's the last verse of this chapter in verse 22. So Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem. And here are these words, here's this phrase, as the barley harvest was beginning. In this first act, it ends with this phrase, as the barley harvest was beginning. It gives us a glimmer of hope as a reader. It gives us a glimmer of hope that maybe, maybe there's a provision here as they're showing up when, when it, they're moving from famine to feast, right when the stalks begin to open up and release life, right where there might be God's provision, here they're showing up right at that right time. And like I sh- shared earlier, the first chapter is bleak. It's dark, right? Like, this is not a Hallmark movie. But this is like what a jeweler does before they show you the beauty of a gem or a diamond. They lay out this black velvet so that when they put the, when they put the diamond down, you can see the radiance and the beauty. That's what this first chapter is. It's, it's showing us that life has a lot of loss, it has a lot of pain, it has a lot of sorrow that's along with it. And what we see in this first chapter is oftentimes life goes off script, does it not? I was talking to a friend of mine recently, and her family's gone through such uh, pain, and, and her kids have spun off in all these different directions. They recently had a family picture, and she was looking at this picture and she says, this is not what I thought it would be like, Mark. This isn't, this isn't the script I was given. 
And, but this chapter even gives us just a snapshot of how we can respond when life goes off script. When 10 years down the road, you're going, this is, I'm empty. This is nothing I expected. These, there's four different characters, and I'm, this is really quick. There's four different characters we find in this. It gives us examples of how to respond when life goes off script. First was Elimelech. What, what did Elimelech do when, when loss happened? When there is barrenness in the land and spiritual depravity? Well, he controlled it. And it's not a bad thing. He was looking provision. In the time of hunger, he left his home and he went to the, the neighboring country that didn't even want to accept them. Why did he do that? Well, because he could manage that. And am I, the, am, am I the only one that allows God to be God on my time scale? Is that it? Am, am I the only one that's like, <laughs> hey, God, I'm going to trust you with this till Tuesday, and then I'm going to take over if you don't mind it? So if you're going to move, you got till Tuesday. We find with Elimelech, oftentimes when life goes off script, we can get white-knuckled. We can kind of like life hack our way through the pain, through how the, the curves of life have happened. But we see here that oftentimes all that re- reveals is how little control we have even then. Elimelech had no clue the devastation that was waiting for him. But we can try to control when life goes off script. Another thing we can do is like Orpah, her namesake, uh, we can run. She lived up to her name, and she had every right to, to leave Naomi when she was released. She even tried to stay with Naomi, even. But she ran from, uh, ran from the, the change in this life script. She ran back home. And we can respond in the same way. When life goes off script, oftentimes we can run. We can run to more busyness. We can run to our job. We can, we can try to numb ourselves, so just so we don't feel the tension of when sorrow and conflict happens. Like you can, you can hide behind shopping, you can hide in a bottle, you can hide in all sorts of things. You can numb yourself through binge-watching Netflix just to get away from the pain and the suffering that we experience. Or you could be like Naomi. She, she begins the chapter in sweetness and she ends it in bitterness. And she seems like she has no plans on being anyone other than bitter. Like that was how her life was going to end up. She had made a home with that idea. She identified with being bitter. But, but then there's Ruth. And what does Ruth display for us? When life goes off script, she clung to Naomi. She shows us the power of committing ourselves to one another in the midst of of challenges in the middle of a battle, how we can cling to one another. We can, we can commit ourselves to one another at great costs. We can do this. And she actually displayed, displayed the main message of this book. And it's wrapped up in this single word that we heard earlier in the chapter, this word hesed. This right here for me is the main theme of the whole story of Ruth. This word hesed, you could define hesed as loyalty or faithfulness or kindness. But it's not the kind of kindness that you'll hear at Chick-fil-A when you say, thank you, it's my pleasure. It's it's, It's a bigger kind of kindness than that. It's this type of loyalty that's never ending the, one, one, the, the way that it was defined, the way I, I love I the definition of this the most, it's loyal love. 
It's the type of love that won't give up on you when it gets difficult. It's this unending, unbreakable, clinging to each other type of loyal love that we can have for one another. And the, what's so beautiful about this story is that while, Na- while Naomi is wondering, where is God? Like, where has God been? Has God not been just taking everything from me? What she doesn't see is that God's hesed, his loyal love, is looking at her in the face in Ruth. Like this provision that she's not going to be alone, that she's going to be cared for and provided for, even though she can't see it, that God's loyal love and provision has been given to her in Ruth. And so I just want to stop right now. If, if there are people who are going through a chapter one type of experience in your life, I just want to say that God is going to love you with loyalty. He's going to cling to you. God's not going to give up on you. Even when you have bitterness and you point at God with all the frustration and hurt in your life, that God's not going to give up on you. That's not the kind of love that God has. God has loyal love for you, persistent love. And as a community, one of the ways that we can experience that is we're going to commit to each other. When life goes bad, as a community, we're going to commit to each other. We're going to walk through the pain and the sorrow. We're going to walk through it, and we're going to lift up each other's arms. We're going to carry each other's burdens. Why? That's who God's been. That's who we're going to be. And what a privilege it is as we are living out this kind of loyal love. What's happening beneath the surface is that God is showing off that he is a good redeemer. Don't you want to be that kind of church? I know I do.